0: Hello and welcome to episode three of This Never Happens, which is again happening, amazingly.
1: (laughs) That's very cheerful, Christina. (laughs) And hello from a slightly grumpy Lillian who's having to deal with online teaching.
2: And hello from an ebullient Ian who doesn't have
0: to work in any way, shape or form. (laughs) And hello from Christina who forgot to introduce herself. Because right. she was so busy you. being
1: a bullion. <laughs> Does that mean you play bull? Because I you're Francaise be. <laughs> with onions around your neck. Is
2: that you know, I, the I pun of a week? A, I do <laughs> have a sporting trophy. I did or win Manor. a sporting trophy. No. I won the uh, no, I won Glasgow School's Curling Champion... Nineteen seventy one. Oh, I
1: think I knew that. That's because the only <laughs> skating rink in Glasgow is next to the school that we both used to go to. So no one exactly. else gets a chance to learn how to curl. Uh,
2: there, there was a league with other schools involved.
1: They were probably public schools that were in the highlands where it's always freezing. <laughs> <laughs> other ice is available.
2: Well, yes. Oh, well. So, Christina, you were doing so well with that introduction and we've gone and ruined it for you. That's what, fine. What are, we talking, what are we going to talk about I don't
0: first? I think we ruined it. I think I ruined it. I think <laughs> we're going to talk about the locks or letters of comment for those who <laughs> listen to this particular um, podcast and have never heard of locks. <laughs> <laughs> or emails.
1: We just E-mops. had a heated discussion. Because Ian likes calling them e and no one else in the world does, which is an email of comment and no one uses that, nobody.
0: Anyway, this time we had several locks, um, some from people we heard from before, like Claire from Croydon and some from other people like Yvonne. Or
1: Mark oh. from Croydon. <laughs> yeah, Mark from Croydon. Two-thirds of our lots came, it has to be said, from people in Croydon, some of whom, all of whom, in fact, live in the same house. That house is a hotbed of EMOC infection.
0: I just enjoyed Yvonne's lot because it's all about Duolingo, but I was a little bit worried because I wasn't sure whether the reason she, she writes, last week I decided I could move up a league, um... And this is the first time I've actually put my mind to doing this. So Yvonne is a hardened Duolingo um, user, shall we say, who's been um, learning Italian. So I don't know if it's as, as a result of listening to our podcast Or, as a result of Ian spending so much time editing our podcast that she got bored. You're (laughs) correct in the second supposition. Yeah. So, anyway, Yvonne started on this program to move up a Duolingo league. Um, And I had to actually look this up to find out what all the leagues were because I've never really looked into it. So, basically.
1: I wondered if they were all named the same as wedding anniversaries because she said she was in the Pearl
0: League. So I was wondering if there was like a paper league and a tin league and a golden anniversary league. I, guess, I have no idea. I had no idea, but what I have seen is that they started bronze, silver and gold. So I reckon they used to have three leagues and think, oh, well, it will be like the Olympics. You can you know, you know, get mm. a bronze medal, a silver and a gold. And then, of course, they got too many people, so they had to invent some more. So then they... They did ruby, which fits in with your theory. It's the wedding. Yeah. Mm. Emerald, amethyst. And if Yvonne actually wants to try and get up a league, she's going to end up in obsidian.
1: Obsidian! (laughs) (laughs) This is sapphire and steel. She's going to end up I a transgalactic, (laughs) mysterious agent of chaos. (laughs) With a really 60s haircut.
0: In fact, okay. I found out that I am in the Sapphire League So ah! I c- ah! <laughs> There is no steel So it's this up to is the me
1: the most exciting thing that's <laughs> happened in the history of this podcast Which is literally not that
0: long um, Yvonne said that she'd had problems In that she's lost streaks And they haven't mended them for her But mm. So she hasn't told us What she's up to on her streak But um, John Coxon Said he once had a 400 day Duolingo streak Did he? But he lost it when he moved house. But Claire from Croydon admitted <laughs> to having a 1,054 day Girolingo streak. So beat that, anybody.
1: That is so Claire. That is the most yeah. Claire like thing that Claire has ever said in a lock to us. I don't, mm. I don't think you showed me the lock from John Cox.
0: <laughs> it, was, it was shared, it's not very long. <laughs> <laughs> I could do the other <laughs> part of it if you like. Is
1: it, is it a Pico lock? Yeah.
0: It's, uh, well, it's more than a nano. It's a nano. It's lock. a nano emo. <laughs> Yeah. I don't know if, whether to read out the other part of it because it would just be bad for Ian's ego. <laughs>
1: don't. Don't. That's all, right. all we need. <laughs> I just want it, to say that I thought it was very sweet of Yvonne to write as a lock about her Duolingo <laughs> when she lives with Ian and no doubt told me it all already. So it's quite sweet of her to no, have written it all
2: she down. She, she was doing it to get revenge because I spent so long editing uh, that she was forced to do Duolingo so that she could put headphones on and not hear me, <laughs> or rather not hear us.
1: I was going to say, I think my favourite luck, which strangely no one's mentioned, um, came from Christina Lake of Falmouth because it seems to be in my list of locks. <laughs> yeah. And it was the one in which she um, went to Google This Never Happens, the podcast, because she couldn't find the URL and discovered that This Never Happens, the fancy, was on okay. sale on Amazon as vintage porn.
0: <laughs> I'd forgotten that.
1: That may well have been my high spot in the winter, though. But... Yeah.
0: It's one of mine as well.
1: <laughs> and now we're all going to sell all our old copies of DNA.
2: Some... I've, uh, I had a look for it and couldn't find it, so I think Christina has to share the <laughs> URL for us and we'll put it into the, the information about the, the OK, podcast. I'll
0: see if I can find it again.
1: Oh, mm. yeah, we definitely should put it in the sleeve notes with the podcast. Yeah. Especially particularly <laughs> as I have lots of copies, I think. Of... Well, if not the first one, mm. then some of the early ones.
0: <laughs> I think somebody would be really disappointed if they bought our fanzine as vintage porn.
1: Do we have any idea why it was thought
0: of as vintage
1: porn?
0: Misclassification error. Does anyone want any more locks, or have you all had enough of locks already? Let's talk about
1: ants. I'm only interested in Yeah, talking about let's ants. talk
0: about ants then.
1: Well, I was the one who said that I'd never heard of Flying Ants Day and I thought you'd made it up. And I was really quite realistic about that. I actually genuinely thought you guys were making it up or had been smoking too much peyote or something. Um, And then all all these people started discussing it on Facebook quite independently. It was Roy Mm. Kettle and Harry Bell. And then Ian Williams, who I don't really know, but is one of the old Newcastle Gannett fans, isn't he? Yeah, Um, Mm -hmm. said, Oh, we didn't have that in the north, so maybe that explains why I've never heard of this.
0: But Um, there must have been at least two flying ants. I mean, I know somebody's already explained that they happen at different places, at different um, times for different places. Anyway, what Mark says to explain what I was trying to say rather better, he says, Um. It's all driven by atmospheric conditions, and so ant day in Croydon isn't necessarily the same as ant day in Falmouth. Alternatively, he adds, there really was a universal ant date when they used to get their information from the light from the radio. The ants would all listen in, waiting for the broadcast of code phrase, say Bless mon coeur d'une longer monotone. You can tell my French has gone really downhill, and then Vum, they'd all take flight. And now they all get their information from a podcast so they all go off at different times. (laughs) (laughs) It's as good an explanation as it is. I think it's a pretty good explanation. And the other thing I liked about that was that I'd... I feel that my whole French degree, French education was wasted because when I was learning about Paul Verlaine at uh, Warwick University, to name names... Not a person mentioned that um, his lines were used in um, the BBC broadcast for alerting the allies about the invading France so
1: I'm something I I'm totally lost. D- How does this relate d- 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 to ants and who is Paul um, Belin? This relates to were they, the
2: were the ants
1: in and friends? Were they no. ants? were Were they were the they were They were worker ants. No, they, were ar-
0: they were army ants. It was
1: early Stalinism.
0: <laughs> no, the code phrase that uh, Mark put into his lock <laughs> is a couple of lines from a f- French poem by the poet Paul Valéry. Whose poem mm-hmm. "Chanson d'Automne" was broadcast on the BBC? Because it'd been arranged that this was a code for letting the Allies know that they've got to start sabotaging the railway lines.
1: But how could you but possibly think, have Lillian... expected us to join those yeah.
0: dots? No, but Lillian, <laughs> you you have an
2: amazing story about that links Eurovision, a holiday <laughs> in Portugal, and. And secret code messages? I do. Yes, This you is do. like the bit of Graham
1: Norton, where they have the guy <laughs> on the couch who's clearly forgotten the briefing he had with the producer, who will have been a uh-huh. 12-year-old girl, not Graham Norton, four days earlier, and now he's had three glasses of wine, which I have as well. And I have <laughs> oh, no wow. idea what deadly. you're talking about.
2: <laughs> you were on holiday in Portugal with your family when there was a revolution. Oh,
1: yes, yeah, so I was.
2: And what was the trigger for the revolution? No idea. The signal to start the revolution was when the Portuguese entry in the Eurovision Song Contest started in the Eurovision broadcast.
1: Why do you it's, all assume I would know these pointless pieces but of but trivia? You told me though No, that <laughs> was That's someone right. else.
2: Oh, someone else told me you were on holiday <laughs> with your family in
1: Portugal. Now, I told you I there was, there was on revolution. holiday with my family in Portugal, but as I was about six at the time, I have no recollection of what Eurovision song contest song the bloody Portuguese revolution. <laughs> I would have
0: thought six would be ideal age for watching Eurovision. <laughs> yeah.
1: I've never Boom, heard of that bang, in my life. That was someone else you slept with. <laughs> <laughs> So, I just thought that
2: would have been a very nice link between discussing uh, Ant Day and, and Paul Verlaine uh, moving smoothly into Eurovision, but there you go. We can, well, we can we bury it move, someplace we could, in the lead.
0: We could move... Tell you sm-
2: what, we can come back to this. when If we ever get round to discussing the Eurovision song, I can lead into it <laughs> by saying, Lillian, you've got an interesting Eurovision story. <laughs>
1: i you tell it, Ian. You're the one who made it all. <laughs> it's your story. <laughs> podcast we had a big discussion about lockdown tv but um one of the things that we all enjoyed was really high production values uh the quite the opposite of the the paired down staged and that was fire saga the eurovision movie which we should all be really ashamed of i think (laughs)
2: Well, I wasn't ashamed of it. I've always liked Eurovision. It was frustrating for me for a, uh, quite a long time, uh, during the 70s and 80s, that I couldn't watch it, because I was always working on a Saturday night, playing, <laughs> playing in pubs. But uh, I remember sitting at one of the Stevenage conventions. I can't even remember which one. And it happened to be the weekend of... Uh, the Eurovision and I sat in the bar and watched Eurovision rather than go to the, the
0: programme. <laughs> so you were into Eurovision before it became trendy to be into Eurovision? Yes. But yes, I've always that? been
2: fascinated by the different the different groups of people who watch Eurovision for different reasons. People like me that watch it for the sort of songs sort of because, you know, I'm interested in how they're put together and how awful they are. <laughs> some people are in it for the spectacle and the you know the glamour the costumes but there's this weird bunch of people who are in it for the voting.
1: Who don't that's that's me. Don't I was going to say yeah. that. I'm only interested in and the voting. I just, yeah. just
0: love the drama
1: of who's going to vote
0: for who. And the psychology and the politics. No, it's yeah. great. Mm.
1: There's just something about the voting. I mean, I would, in, when I, in days when I was younger and more popular, I was usually out on a Saturday. So I think usually for Eurovision, I would indeed come in from the pub and watch the voting, and I was perfectly happy doing that, even though I haven't seen any of the songs.
0: Yeah, I don't think there was enough voting in Eurovision song contests, the story of Far Saga. Oh, okay. well, oh that's I still enjoyed that bit. bit. It, it, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I enjoyed pan,
2: it. It didn't pander to that group of people, but all everyone else... The costumes and the songs, I mean... Oh, the, yeah, the costumes there. and the
1: songs were great, but I think you are the only person who actually watches it to assess the musicality of the <laughs> entry. <N-rated. laughs> That's you out of 60 million people or 600 million people. Oh, so
0: what did you think of the music in the Eurovision, this film? Did it I do it for you, Ian? it was lunch?
2: It was fine. Um, did you spot that when they were doing the sort of montage of just getting, you know... One country got about a verse and a half, and then another country did their bit, and so on. It was the same song. No, no, <laughs> no. So <laughs> one was it was the first one did it as a as a as an up tempo one. The next one it was exactly the same tune, but as a ballad.
1: Wow. And then the
2: next one was doing it as it started as a ballad, then went mid tempo. Oh, I think I did. Sa- I think I
1: did notice that it was that. the same
2: tune that all of them were doing. I laughed a lot at that bit.
1: Whereas, yeah, we completely ignored it, and this is why we don't compose musicals. (laughs) I was only. Yeah, sorry. Mm. (laughs) uh,
2: uh, I I suspect Christina's going to give us now the... Serious critique of the movie as uh, in uh, because oh. she's been list- she's been deprived of her favorite podcast can I do... or her only podcast.
1: <laughs> I can do one insight into it. I've just remembered, which yes. is Nulla, who wrote us a lot last yeah. time, uh, who I used to go to films with, and doubt anymore. Now we, no one goes out to films. We were discussing it and. Apparently, none of the jumpers in it are actually Icelandic. <laughs> <Because> <laughs> she she works for a knitting company and knows all about jumpers.
0: That was part of what I was going to talk about was... <laughs> Knitwear. New, Knitwear. No, no, about Icelandic and um, the kind of the representation of Iceland in it. And... That was when I was going to be serious, but then I thought, no, I don't really want to be serious because um, actually it's a fun film. It was an over the top yeah. with lots of lots of cool stuff in it, uh, lots of spectacle. I was going to describe it as kind of a cross between Fisherman's Friends and The Hunger Games, or the less gruesome parts of The Hunger Games. <laughs> 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 I think because that yes. that woman on fire kept turning up. Oh yeah.
1: I- I suppose there was a fire bit. I mean, I thought it was more or less, as I say, across between Mamma Mia and Blades of Glory. Um, and Blades of cool. Glory, for those who don't, haven't seen it, is one of my favourite all-time bad films, uh, which is uh, <laughs> Steve... Is it Steve Farrell as well? Which is about yeah. two guys who get thrown out of figure skating world competition, and the only way they can get back in is to skate with each other as the only... <laughs> male same sex figure skating in pairs and it's hysterical i absolutely love it and i think honestly that this is this is a search and replace version of blades of glory every single plot point in blades of glory happens and also it's got very similar costumes
0: <laughs> yeah anyway back to back to the icelandicness of it i think there's something about um the accents in it that made me find it quite amusing because I don't know if any of you have watched uh, Norseman. No. Basically, Norseman's a Netflix series made in Norway, which is a pastiche of Vikings, which is another series I haven't watched on Netflix. Uh And it's um, lots of Norwegian guys uh, speaking in uh, English... And it's just a really funny series. So when I hear people trying to pretend to do Nordic accents, it is intrinsically funny because it reminds me of the people in that series. I can see that's not making any sense to any of you. No,
1: it is, but I'm actually surprised. I thought you might be a bit more PC than me. And actually kind of object to what has to be seen as egregious cultural appropriation. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, do we know what the reaction of Icelandic people to this has been? Because I don't think most Icelandic people do sit around in a one-horse pub in a one-horse town. Well, this is where i was to be coming unmanly. from with
0: Sorry. You know, this is where uh, I was coming from with Fisherman's Friends, is that Fisherman's Friends is a film about um people who sit around in a pub in Cornwall and it's very much a cultural appropriation of of Cornishness and it's a bit of a caricature of it and so this is exactly what I was worried about We're well, not worried about It's just what, um, for me, I really like You know, I've been to Iceland a couple of times And I really enjoy things set in Iceland But I would have much preferred it If it had been, obviously, a real Icelandic film With Icelandic people talking really? and um, speaking <laughs> English <laughs> would have been much or? less <laughs>
1: funny? <laughs> well,
0: no, it wouldn't have been less funny it could have been more funny, but...
2: Well, the, the cultural thing, whether it's appropriate or not, uh, or appropriation or not, that, that was the endless running gag about your brother and sister No, we don't yes, think so. Yes, that was so
0: funny. And, <laughs> I'm sorry, uh, I that. was a good, that, good I mean, gag, but I, they didn't talk about the DNA app, which I really that, thought that they should have is, done. But There's <laughs> a DNA app! It yeah. That's,
2: that's why <laughs> funny to me, because it assumed, I think they assumed that everybody knew that there is a... No, there's no a dating I just assumed yeah. there weren't
1: very many people in that village, you know, and they all look no, blonde. No, it's for
2: the whole of Iceland. There's only 300,000 people in Iceland and they're nearly all related. Yeah. So they're they have a dating app that has the genealogy of every single person. So you can find out before you swipe right or left or whatever it is you're doing, whether you are actually related to the person too close for comfort.
0: I actually thought that as well as it being a joke about um a sort of the necessity of checking whether you're related to people, it was actually a joke about whether her whether his father was his actually father, yes. her father. So exactly. there was plenty of levels on it. One thing I did notice when I went to Iceland, on the third time we'd we'd kind of done three stopovers, so we'd already done all the main trips. So we did a trip to um go to all the locations of Game of Thrones and we had oh, yes. a really enthusiastic guide with right. us. And one of the things she told us about in between reenacting where Aria would have been when certain scenes were shot was that it was going to be Eurovision that weekend. And but Aye. she and her friends were all going to go to the cinema to watch it and have a big party. So there was hmm. definitely a huge enthusiasm for Eurovision oh, in Iceland. And,
2: <laughs> and this this year's Icelandic entry for Eurovision was fantastic. <laughs> it was, I thought the actual song
1: was very good. I mean, I thought that was mm. probably their attempt at having a kind of frozen, you know, breakaway hit come yeah. best Oscar song. And I did think it was a very good song. Am well, I alone? It enough? was a
2: good song. <laughs> and all, all the songs that were performed in it were written by the same, I think it was a single person. Or, yeah, I think I you. noticed and that. they were all pretty good. I liked them. But I what about Ya Ya Ding Dong though? <laughs> did you
0: not like that? <laughs> oh, I loved you. Yeah, yeah, ding dong.
1: Well, it was a good little film. The more you talk about it, yeah. the more I remember it, things I like. I like well, the fact that it wasn't a disaster. I like the fact that he didn't mm. end up in the bright lights, that you know yeah. that they avoided a few of the obvious cliches. I like the baby with the headphones on at the end. Yeah. But mostly, I like the fact that the Glasgow SECCC was put in Edinburgh, which <laughs> yeah. has irritated so almost that, everyone well, the hydra, I know.
2: But the, the other thing I was going to bring up when you were talking about the, the, the homogeneity or, or genetic uh, side of, of Iceland was that when we saw the girl whose name I've forgotten, um, you know, there was Will Ferrell's character and there was the girl, but her mother, I was convinced that her mother was being played by Anna Fried in ABBA. To me, she oh, looked exactly I, like I, Anna. I Freed. A bit about that as like well it.
1: yeah
2: to the extent that I had to look up an IMDb and discovered that it, it was, you know, somebody. Her name was, you know, like Agnes Petersdotter, or, or, or yeah, whatever.
0: And I, I'm, definitely I'm not sure. Anna Freed from Abbott. But maybe I'm they sure. were trying to make her look like Anna Freed. I from think Abba.
1: they did. But the other thing I was going to say, slightly more seriously, was that I did like the magical realist bits. I liked the bit where mm. she was saying, I like living here and look. And then there was this kind of animated mm. whale that jumped out. Yeah, yeah
0: of it. that's and true.
1: Then, that was lovely. That was like a Wes Anderson movie or something. It was Although, like a better uh, the movie. Risk of,
2: <laughs> the risk of spoilers when we finally got evidence that they, about the elves' reality... <laughs> Uh, in a somewhat brutal way.
0: Uh, I, I thought that was a, a fantastic bit. I love a bit where she just said the elves went too far. Too far
1: I, I liked when the gay Russian was chatting her up and he was also into elves.
0: And yeah. <laughs> he braided her hair all night. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he was very so cute. He needs
1: a breakaway spin off yeah. movie. you know, de-lockdown, talking about, you know, going out into the world because I've now been to two beer gardens.
0: Yeah, tell us more. I've been to
1: Debenham's twice and I'm going to a restaurant on Thursday. (gasps) Good God. I'm very excited about inside. Well, going inside has a bit more significance up here where it's bloody freezing. (laughs) I kept saying this throughout lockdown, but this was not as easy as everyone was making it to live al fresco up here where it's been 12 to 14 degrees at night.
0: That doesn't sound that cold.
1: It is, though. Well, it's probably the
0: same as the temperature down here at night. But anyway, that's beside the point. So you're going to tell us about your experiences in beer gardens, Ben. I'll tell you my experience with trying to work out what we're going to do with book group this month, which is determined (laughs) to meet in real life.
1: Good. Unlike my book group, which is determined not to meet in real life. So I said to my book group, you know... before it looked like we were freeze to death when the weather was still better, I said, oh, you could meet in my garden if you want, you know, expecting someone else to say, oh, I've got a much bigger garden than you. But nonetheless, <laughs> quite happy, you know, and I would make snacks and whatever, you know, do my Jewish mama mm-hmm. impression. And got no take-up whatsoever. I think they're quite happy meeting on Zoom for the rest of their lives. And...
0: <sighs> no, we were determined to meet outside, so... At the end of last month's Zoom meeting, we thought, well, by next month, we'll be able to meet outside. So we agreed we'd meet at the Yacht Club and mm-hmm. we'll, um, yeah, because the Yacht Club's not open yet. We could just sit out there and look at the water and it'd all be lovely. Yeah, and So I you
1: had a Yacht Club.
0: <laughs> indeed. It's not my personal Yacht Club, though. So we we're all <laughs> happily going along with this idea until I, being the sort of person that wants details, started asking (laughs) questions like, uh, I suppose I asked one question, which was, uh, will there be any toilets? I asked Uh, another one about whether we could bring, whether we ought to bring chairs and things like that. And then I asked the really boring question, which was, do you think it will matter that there are going to be more than six of us? Will we, will there be a perception that we're breaking lockdown rules? But I think the one that people were most concerned about was uh, the toilets. <laughs> I was yeah, hoping so they cared the about the lockdown problem. rules. So I think now Susan, you're allowed
1: to be from about four different households with about 15 people or something. I've lost track. I mean it's different in England than
0: Scotland. It is different. I looked at, I made the mistake of looking at the rules and it said said things like, even if you go if you go to a pub and there's six of you, that's that's fine. But if you see your friends at the pub and they're not in the groups that you came with. You're not meant to go over and say hello to them because oh, no, obviously no, you'll no, be that, spreading that one's things. So because obviously yeah. that
1: will spread. It's that one actually makes sense, unlike most of these rules. It but, does
0: make sense, but it's also quite difficult in a place like Falmouth where you do tend to know lots of people in the same yeah, place. Yeah, but that's so.
1: you know, you've just got to be strong. I'm sorry. And <laughs> blank them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like your friend. Them. Cancel culture. So anyway, cancel we culture.
0: we've got to stage where. Um, one of the members said we could all come around her house. That was great, but there was getting to be about eight, ten people who wanted to go. So that's it probably was almost... not
1: allowed because you can have more outside. So <laughs> I know.
0: So it was there. Seemed to be this kind of um, trade off between what I suggested was well, we could we could just book two tables at one of the local pubs. But people were worried that um, that wouldn't be very safe because tourists would be coming and they all the diseased, <laughs> germ-ridden people would be there. Whereas being
1: a tourist. We'll discuss that later. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Whereas we, of course, being local people, <laughs> would be oh, all nice and germ-free.
1: <laughs> germ-free adolescents.
0: <laughs> yeah, has, has, germ-free, not so germ-free adolescent. Germ-free
1: adolescents in this pandemic. I don't think they have,
0: actually. Somebody must have. But anyway, so we are now going to go and break lockdown by going around somebody's house and <laughs> trying. To, she said she can keep us at two. Two metre distance. Is that the right
1: amount? I think you're allowed one yeah. metre in England.
0: <laughs> yeah, for viewers, but, mm, not for it's not viewers very in
1: Scotland as usual. Although, in fact, it's, it's a con because Scotland's been putting out this aura of being terribly holier than thou, you know, doing everything right. And we were staying two metres when England was one metre because England's <laughs> just a slutty stop out. I'm really <laughs> loving the discourse around this. <laughs> but um, if you actually look at what the Scottish rules Net say now, they say two metres, except for we're going to allow exceptions that we're still talking about, but they will apply. Two, and then it lists all the sectors you can think of in the world, including retail and hospitality and tourism, and that's basically it. That's all you need. One meter for
0: Yes, yeah, but if you just give the headline as being two meters, exactly, then the rest exactly. is the exceptions. That's all right.
1: And that's why Nicola's got that's a sixty percent approval rating, whereas Boris yeah. has got a minus thirty
0: approval
1: rating. <laughs> Bad <laughs> which Boris. Which I'm very pleased with. <laughs>
0: So anyway, that's my, my potential outing to... I thought I was going to be going at least to the Yacht Club, but looks like Aww. I'm just going around someone's house.
1: discussion about cultured, you know, lockdown TV. Mm. In fact, I've been so busy lately that the only thing I've watched has been the reruns of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, mm. which Channel 4 is showing every night at 11, yes. and even better, then it's on again on, on Channel 4 Plus 1. So if you're really working late, you can always watch it on Channel 4 Plus 1. And honestly, Season 2 of Buffy, it's just as good as you remember. It really is.
2: Yes, if Yvonne and I wanted to check something that uh, had been on Channel 4 News and we went to the old 4 service to watch Channel 4 News and ended up watching two episodes of Buffy I know instead. so
1: many people who are now watching Buffy again. <laughs> Unforeseen consequences of the pandemic. My friend in Aberdeen is now texting me regularly again saying, oh, do you remember this one? <laughs> you know. <laughs> But I still think also that David Boreanaz is a really crap actor, but he's great at being Mm. evil. As soon as he becomes evil Mm. rather than good, you can see he's enjoying himself so much more, you know? Yes. And his acting gets better.
2: Ah, spoilers.
1: (laughs) Oh, come on! (laughs) It was how long ago, was it? (laughs) Too soon. At this point, everyone goes and looks up where Buffy was.
0: I haven't yet managed to persuade Lillian to talk about fanzine, so I'm going to introduce a capsule review section. A lucky fanzine this time is This Here, fanzine from Nick Fowry, who, for those who don't know him, is a one-time British fan, now living in Las Vegas. I'm reviewing This Here 31, which is likely to be out of date any minute now. Since lockdown began, issues of This Here have been appearing with increasing rapidity, or as Mark Plummer has been saying in the letter column, every half an hour which means I have about five minutes to complete this review, if I'm lucky. One of the benefits of writing a fast and frequent fanzine is that the material begins to generate itself. This here is like a self-perpetuating machine, which keeps going without needing much in the way of new topics. Nick simply pours in a bit of strident invective, or commissions some from his football colonist Dave Hodgson, and sits back waiting for responses. But as with most fanzines at the moment, This here is also a chance for Nick and his correspondents to exchange experiences on lockdown and life in times of COVID in various parts of the world. This issue starts with a rare contribution from Nick's wife, talking about a surprise birthday outing to a restaurant where she was excited to meet up with a couple of fellow Las Vegas fans in what turned out to be a short moment of lockdown easing before another spike in the virus. As we've been discussing, there is something very different about meeting people in real life compared to talking to them on Zoom and you can see from the photo on the front page of a fanzine how much they were enjoying it. As Nick says later in the issue Zoom is like an amphetamine high which leaves you feeling worse after it's done. Then we get to the serious fan politics segment of a fanzine which is currently all about the fan awards trying to rectify inconsistencies from the last core flu and making things better for the next much of which I agree with Nick about. This issue, though, the spotlight is on the number one fan face, which has always seemed to me an unnecessary part of the award process, since the recipient has generally swept the board with other categories already. Even Nick couldn't get too excited about it, and after taking the opportunity to use number one fan farce as the headline, he detours into the more controversial territory of whether administrators should A. be on the ballot, B. be allowed to vote, or indeed C. vote for themselves. Nick is in favour of A and B, and possibly even see if it will help his BEAM co-editor Ulrika get an award. Meanwhile, in the letter column, Claire Briley, who is in favour of none of the above, worries about voting for the administrator's own fan activity. Will it be perceived as sucking up, or as snubbing if she doesn't do so? Nick may feel that it's criminally delicate to have these worries, but I've certainly been there. The letter column features letters from the usual suspects such as Lee Edmonds, David Redd, Steve Jeffrey and Jerry Kaufman. John Nielsen Hall complains that no one is locking his fanzine, which is not surprising as I don't even get it. Meanwhile, Mark Plummer points out the flaws in Nick's 80-20 principle for defining genzines and perzines. What do you do with fanzines which are neither 80% editor-written nor 80% external contributors? Invent a new category called 50-50? Maybe it could replace fan farce. This memo from the Department of a Blindingly Fucking Obvious, as Nick calls it, I do love the way Nick writes, causes him to reflect on his own propensity for setting up zero-sum arguments. This strong editorial personality is what nudges the letter column along so that each letter really is part of a conversation, if only with Nick. But the best part of this issue has to be Dave Hodson's footy column. It starts with a long rant about the lack of social distancing after Liverpool won the league title and how it was entirely predictable. But the genius part was how Dave then managed to get hashtag release the Snyder Cut into a football column, leading to a discussion of fans' sense of entitlement and how giving in to fans can lead to bad things. Not, not just a two-part director's cut of Justice League, but Liverpool fans exposing themselves and their neighbourhoods to a new spike in coronavirus. But really, are Liverpool fans any different from others? I've just seen the footage of Leeds United's fans celebrating their return to the Premiership after 16 years and couldn't see much in the way of social distancing or moderation. But maybe this just reinforces what Dave is saying. But the football season should have been voided as it is entirely predictable that completing the season risks causing new infections. Even more predictable than people crowding onto a beach in a heatwave. The issue ends on a sobering note, though maybe given Nick not an entirely sober one, as Nick suggests that there is a very real prospect for a second civil war in America and even starts to consider whether he should keep a gun in the house. Don't do it, Nick. The elves have gone too far.
2: Have I told you my my favourite word? That uh, we're, no. now, we're now using is doom scrolling. Oh,
1: yes, yes, doom scrolling is brilliant. Yes, doom scrolling, doom scrolling is a I great like it too, term. it's really good. So, it's what good is doom scrolling?
2: <laughs> it's what people do. They sit and they they look at Twitter or they look uh-huh. at Facebook or they look at the newspaper and, they look for all the and just read, read about dev, doom, disaster. And Uh, then they knit all
1: their worries together with their friends. It's like the old joke about knit your own orgasm. You know, you used to see (laughs) these two old ladies sitting together knitting their worries together into a sock. And, you know, for all that I'm a pretty cynical person, I I think I do try to not go down that path because, you know, what good does it do you? And it just makes you even more depressed about the world. (laughs) And I have been getting a little bit tired, but some people, there is, a, there is a group on Facebook who do seem determined to be as anxious as possible about everything. And I don't think that's probably very good for their mental yeah. health.
2: But there, there's also, I mean, tying in with what you were saying earlier, there's there's a group like that, but they take delight in reading.
1: Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's, there's yet another. I mean, really.
2: You know, California's I mean, numbers have gone mm, back up. Yeah, oh, yeah, right, yeah. You know.
1: Yeah, we're doomed. So. We're doomed. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you
0: know, and and. I try yeah. to avoid all of that. I know that I am mm. being a bit. Um, head in sand about some of it, but I just want mm. to feel that there's still positive things you can do yeah. and that the whole world is not yet quite over. <laughs> well, I don't
1: think it is. I mean, mm. I mean, I have a sort of science fictional shock of the new about it sometimes. It's like if you'd taken us six months ago and you'd gone like, well, we're going to get, move into this world in which people will still be able to go and get their hair cut. But, you know, they'll have to come in and be hidden behind a perspex shelf and then their cutter will come out and they'll be wearing a big visor over their head and no one will have a coffee. But it'll work, you know, and you'll be able to have a haircut. But, you know, I would never have thought we could think all these things up. You know, I would just have thought people will say, well, you'll never have a haircut again until you die. And it'll be like station 11, you know, and we'll just have to live on our own in stations with huskies or something. Whereas yeah, huskies. Come- yeah.
0: Sorry. I think it's really helping us plan our uh, dystopian post-apocalyptic novels <laughs> yes. now. It's going to be a whole new <laughs> new genre and uh, range of details that people never thought Ooh. of before, exactly. and you'll be able to... Tell which novels were written before this and which were Easy. written afterwards. Because yeah. do you ones think bef- anyone's
1: going to want to read a post-apocalyptic disaster novel?
0: After well, this. judging by how many people seem to want to read the existing ones and watch existing movies, then yeah, probably.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's true. Maybe that's a bit like nostalgia, though. You know, for for a day, a time when it wasn't real. <laughs>
0: yeah, maybe mm. a preference for fictional apocalypses over real ones.
1: I I mean, it's been discussed a lot less lately. I remember at the beginning when it seemed like everyone was writing their coronavirus novel and I heard a discussion on the radio like, no one's going to want to read these. (laughs) You know, everyone wants to Mm. write them.
2: (laughs) Well, I I read about 20 comic strips um, over the course of a week, different comic strips. And I'm just fascinated by the fact that a lot of them are now incorporating people wearing masks oh, really? into wow. the comic strip wow. but there are some of the comic strips are, you know, like they're, they're still rerunning Calvin and Hobbes and they're, you know, 20 30 years old and if they rerun any of these strips <laughs> in 20 years time or even 10 years time, people think, why are they all doctors? Why is everybody in this cartoon <laughs> a doctor?
1: But it is really going <laughs> to be funny i mean again i know they discussed this quite a lot at the start but it's disappeared i think like what you know what's going to happen to eastenders and casualty and all the things that are ongoing you know not not just soaps really is everyone going to have masks on you know is everyone going to be stuck in their houses or are they just going to pretend that all these series go on in a parallel world in which none of this ever happened but how do pub scenes. I mean, you know, if you take EastEnders, which none of us have watched, let's admit, for you know, 20 years or so, but I still watch it
0: once oh, in five the years.
1: Yeah. <laughs> in my case, uh, me and Christina used to like EastEnders, so I September used to watch
0: here. it for ages.
1: I watched it because Simon Ansley had to watch it for his (laughs) communications O-level. I always tell that story. (laughs) And that was what made me start watching it, because I had no intention of watching EastEnders. I'd never watched a soap opera in my life. So the nature of the modern British soap opera is, you know, canonically that it's based around pubs, right? Uh, I mean, I've only watched EastEnders, but, you know, uh, Coronation Street's got a pub. I think Emmerdale's got a pub. Maybe. Maybe. The wool
2: pack, it's called. Yeah.
1: Wow. That's a piece of information I didn't expect you to have. (laughs) Um, And the reason is because the pub is the modern agora right, if you want to be pretentious. You know, the pub is the place... Well, you you always like being
0: Greek and pretentious.
1: You can introduce new... I'm not Boris Johnson, though.
0: You can introduce (laughs) new
1: characters. They can talk to each other. They can fancy each other. You know, you go like, this is Ricky and here's Ricky's girlfriend, Bianca. You know, then Bianca becomes friends with another character. And it's a really easy way to introduce plot lines and have tension and crisis and drama. And if everyone's meant to be in their own little groups and not meeting anyone new... How are you going to do that, right? I heard um, something on the radio where there were these drama students complaining that for them to, you know, get show tapes together for get trying to get jobs that don't exist. They all they have to do monologues now. They can't do scenes, you know, because you're not meant to be near people. Um, and and how are they going to make more films? You know, are, are the film actors going to agree to live with each other for seven months in a bubble? Yeah, there
0: has been some talk of bubbles, hasn't there? Yeah. But I don't think that really goes with how most people would want to make films. So I maybe they'll have just have so. smaller casts. But
1: I am no, more I think interested it's, in this idea of you know how is it going to affect the way we actually do narrative?
0: <laughs> yeah,
2: although uh, one of these sort of isolation things I thought was funny was Andy Zaltzman has got a gig doing the stats for cricket commentary oh, wow. and he's he was forced to take te- uh, COVID tests and then isolate in a hotel in Boreham Wood or something for <laughs> for a week so that he could commentate on cricket along with the other cricket commentators living in the same hotel. Oh
1: my god, that's a sitcom waiting to happen. (laughs) Imagine all the cricket commentators rolled up in a hotel and then they'll all sleep with each other because there'll only be one woman and they'll all be fighting over it. Oh my god, I could write that now. Actually, I should should tell that's my other bit of news.
2: Would it be... Oh, there's so many titles that came to mind there, but (laughs) Undercovers Under, Offside undercovers <laughs> Well no, undercovers was good. Undercovers one. is
1: good, is good. Yeah. I was thinking about polishing balls yes. and new balls please, I mean you could go so many places with this, there could be a different one for each interlineation
2: I've thought of another good name for the cricket commentators, if you remember the Australian commentator <laughs> Richie Benno yeah. you could call it Benno Dorm
1: Oh god Okay, that's the, that's, the, that's the end of that section. <laughs> yeah.
2: In episode one, we told you that This Never Happens was originally a fanzine published in 1981. Christina and Lillian wrote all the articles, but I also contributed something. It was a song. When we were planning this podcast, Lillian thought it would be great to include it. I explained that what was topical in 1981 would make no sense to anybody now. Do you remember Phil Probert? Jeff Suter? Thought not. But I have rewritten the lyrics with some more up-to-date references. So now, here is, in place of a rata, a cantata. Eat your heart out, fire saga. Rob Jackson has a master plan To prove that he's a super fan Unfurled today, Carf to tomorrow the world. It never happened. Oh no, it never happened. Oh no, but if it happens, you hear it in our podcast stream. Graham Charnock had a new fanzine to prove he's not.